Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of extreme violence. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When you think of Satanists, you probably think of things like out of Rosemary's Baby. Things like blood sacrifices, people in dark robes around pentagrams painted in blood, or chanting while Stairway to Heaven plays backwards in a record machine. But... In reality, members of the Satanic Temple are rarely violent at all, and rarely, if ever, do any of the things I just said. The Temple of Satan, as it exists today, advocates for the separation of church and state, ensuring that any religious exemptions granted to mainstream religions are also granted to others that most would be considered wrong. One of the more famous examples is when a large statue of tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments was erected outside of the Capitol building in Mississippi. The Satanic Temple responded by petitioning to erect their own statue of a demon Baphomet with children seated around the demon. This type of peaceful protest is common for the Satanic Temple. The other thing you might think of around Satanists is the satanic panic of the early 90s that gripped the United States and made a lot of parents believe that Satanists were looking for children to sacrifice to Satan. But there is no proof of that ever actually happening. There's no evidence of Satanists ever sacrificing a child or molesting a child or abusing children at all. It was all made up and has since been disproven. The case I'm talking about this week begins in Chicago in 1959 with a man named Charles Scudder. Scudder was a 33-year-old associate professor at the Loyola University of Chicago's Institute for Mind, Drugs, and Behavior, which is a mouthful of a job, but basically he was working as part of the School of Pharmacology. Scudder was not your typical button-up professor, though. He was a bit of an oddball, and he would do things like dye his hair bright pink, and he even, for a while, kept a monkey as a pet. He lived in a large but somewhat decrepit mansion outside of Chicago. His design style could be described as creepy. He had large pieces of Baroque furniture, and he purchased prop human skulls from a theater that he used as decor. He had an interest in the occult, but it's unclear whether or not he ever actually practiced any sort of witchcraft. Scudder had been married to a woman named Bortai Bunting for about a decade, but had separated in 1959. The couple had four children together, and after the separation, two children continued to live with Scudder while the other two lived with his ex-wife. 
In order to help keep the large home clean and help him raise the kids, Scudder hired a 21-year-old named Joseph Odom as kind of a live-in housekeeper and nanny. Odom was much less educated than Scudder, having only completed the fifth grade before stopping school, but he was an amazing cook and he had a kind, quiet nature about him that Scudder really appreciated. Odom continued to live with Scudder as the years went by and their relationship evolved from employer-employee to something much deeper. The pair fell in love. Keep in mind that in the 60s and 70s in America, homosexuality was still far from mainstream and it was still seen as an unforgivable sin by many people. Scudder and Odom kept their relationship mostly behind closed doors, but they yearned for a life where they could live in the open and freely express themselves. They also had an interest in becoming self-sufficient by growing their own food and not having to depend on grocery stores and restaurants and things like that. Scudder had also just grown really tired of the rat race and the daily grind that his work required. By the mid-70s, they began to seriously plan for this new life, and they'd even started a little garden in the backyard where they grew a good amount of their own food, but they knew that they wouldn't be able to fully realize their dream in Chicago. Instead, they decided that they would purchase acres of land away from everybody and build a big mansion where they could be together and be free. Their plan became a reality when in 1977, Scudder resigned from his position at Loyola University, packed up his home, and drove to the Georgia wilderness near the Chattahoochee National Forest. Two years earlier, in 1975, he had purchased 40 acres of land for just over $10,000, or what would be about $52,000 in today's money. Scudder had drawn up plans for a large brick manor that would not have any electricity or running water, but the pair could make a home. The Chattahoochee National Forest no longer surrounds the area, and it's now known as John's Mountain Wildlife Area. Located just a few miles from the very small town of Tryon, Georgia, the couple found the wildlife area to be peaceful and the exact opposite of the hustle and bustle of Chicago. By then, they were also the proud parents of two large Mastiff dogs who also lived with them. Scudder, Odom, and the dogs spent nearly two years living in a travel trailer on the property while they built the home by hand. They laid each brick, making sure that everything was to their exact specifications. The only thing that they didn't do themselves was dig a deep well that was drilled on the property, which would be their only source of water. When it was done, it looked like a mini castle, and it consisted of a two-story structure with chimneys on either end. In the front, the pair had built a gazebo with a pink gargoyle perched on top. The home contained no electricity, no running water. They basically had to hand pump water in, and they built a chemical outhouse just outside of the main house. Their refrigerator was run by kerosene, and the home was lit up at night using only kerosene lamps. They named their new home Corpsewood Manor, 
partly because of Scudder's interest in the occult, but mostly because of the trees that surrounding the home that looked skeletal in the winter. Unknown to the men, the name they chose was a prophecy. Neither Scudder or Odom were ever very religious, although Odom's sister would later say that he was Catholic. Scudder, instead of finding solace in religion, instead held a strong belief that people should be able to worship whatever they wanted, as long as it didn't hurt anyone else. He was very interested in the occult, as I had mentioned, and he'd collected books and artifacts pertaining to the occult over the years. He even had pentagrams, which are a five-pointed star surrounded by a circle, painted on the doors of his truck, and he even had pentagrams made of brick in the structure of the home. There's also evidence that proves that Scudder was, at some point, a member of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, though it's never been proven that he was very involved. I will say that there are some differences in LaVey's Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple that I talked about at the beginning of this episode, but overall, the members of both rarely actually worship the devil. In fact, it's more just a tool to show the pitfalls of blind religion. Scudder and Odom would head into town every once in a while for things like groceries and, you know, other things that they needed, and the residents of Tryon knew them as nice, friendly people, even if they thought they were a little bit odd. Even though most residents were devout Christians who thought that homosexuality was a sin, they liked the men and they really had no qualms with them. The land that Corpsewood Manor was built on was known to be good hunting land, and every once in a while, a hunter would stumble onto the property by accident, not knowing that someone had purchased it and built this huge mansion there. Each time, though, Scudder was super nice to them. He would kindly tell these hunters that someone lived there now, but for the most part, he allowed them to continue to hunt on the land, as long as they made sure to look out for the dogs and not shoot in the direction of the house. Over time, Odom and Scudder made friends in the area, including sometimes those hunters that came across the house by mistake. Scudder and Odom were strongly protective over their hand-built home, and instead of inviting people inside of the house, more often they would invite people into a separate, three-story, narrow building in the back that they called the chicken coop. The ground floor of the building actually was a chicken coop where chickens lived, The second floor was used mainly for storage, and the third floor, which they called the pink room, was basically a room with only some mattresses on the floor. Although it doesn't seem like a very welcoming place to bring guests, Scudder and Onum were still somewhat new to the area. They knew that they were easily targeted because of their lifestyle, and overall, they just felt much more comfortable not allowing new people into their home. The pair also lived off of the land as much as they possibly could, and they started to even make their own wine. When they did have guests over, they would happily crack open a bottle of the homemade wine and all enjoy it together. Odom spent hours tending to the rose garden in the front of the house, with the big pink gargoyle looking over him. Scudder would spend his days playing with the dogs and even found some time to paint. Around fall of 1982, a 17-year-old boy named Avery Brock was hunting near Corpsewood Manor when he stumbled upon the house like so many other hunters had before him. That is how he met Charles Scudder. Over the next few months, 
Brock returned to Corpsewood several times and had apparently had some sexual encounters with Scudder. During these visits, Scudder would always insist on taking him to the chicken coop and would never allow him to see the inside of the main house. Because of this, Avery Brock started to build up an idea in his head of the kinds of treasures and fortunes the men must be hiding inside of the main house. Brock had recently moved into a trailer just a few miles from Corpsewood with a 30-year-old man named Tony West. Although it's unclear if there was more to their relationship than just roommates, all we do know is that they lived together in this very small trailer. Tony West had had a very troubled upbringing. His father was hit by a train when he was just nine, and then when he was 14, he accidentally shot his two-year-old nephew in the head, killing the baby instantly. When Avery Brock told Tony West about Corpsewood Manor, the men who lived there, and the fortune that he believed was hidden there, West started to develop a plan. He decided that they should go up there and rob the men, then run away and live a life of luxury. On December 12, 1982, Avery Brock and Tony West were set to carry out their plan. It just so happened that West's nephew had a date that night and was having car issues. West saw the opportunity to have two more hands help steal things from Corpsewood, so without telling them exactly what they were going to do, he invited the two teenagers, named Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens, to join them. Instead of telling them that they were going to go rob these men, West told the teens that they were just going to drive around and maybe go up to the, quote, devil worshippers place. Once they got up to Corpsewood Manor, they were welcomed by Scudder and brought back to the chicken coop to hang out there. Scudder also brought some bottles of his homemade wine, and the group drank from those while they all just kind of hung out. After a little while of drinking and hanging out, Avery Brock left the chicken coop and retrieved a 22 caliber rifle from his car. When he got back to the chicken coop, he attacked Scudder and held him with the gun to his head, saying that he wanted money. Scudder denied having any money for Avery to take. Tony West then cut up some strips of sheets and tied Scudder's hands and feet and then gagged him. The two other teens that had joined them just started panicking. They were crying. They were begging Brock and West to stop. But Scudder remained pretty calm, saying at one point, I'll go along with your game. What kind of game do you want to play? But it was not a game, and the men were about to cross the point of no return. Once Scudder was secured in the chicken coop, Brock took the gun and went to the main house. From the chicken coop, the group heard four or five shots. Seconds later, Brock re-entered the coop and said, quote, I've killed the dogs and I've killed the man. It was at that moment that Scudder must have realized the severity of the situation and he broke down crying. Brock and West then took the group inside the main home where they saw the body of Joseph Odom laying in a pool of his own blood. They even had to step over him to get further into the house and go to the library room. The two dogs were lying dead just a few feet away. Scudder was beyond emotion at this point, and he kept trying to get up and go to Odom's body, but Brock and West would not let him. 
After about 35 minutes of asking over and over for Scudder's money and Scudder telling them that he didn't have any, Tony West shot Scudder in the forehead with the rifle, though Scudder did not die right away and he was actually still able to talk and walk, but he was bleeding profusely. Scudder again tried to get to Odom's body and was shot two more times in the forehead before finally collapsing right next to Odom. Once both of the men were dead, Tony West stayed with the two teenagers outside while Avery Brock scoured the inside of the home looking for cash and other valuables. They were convinced that there was a boatload of cash in the house, but looking through this dark house with nothing but a hand lantern was not easy. They could not find any treasure trove of cash inside the house, and the men were upset. It seemed like Scudder was actually telling the truth when he said that they didn't have any money at the house. In fact, the couple had lived really frugally, and they didn't have a lot of money to their name. They only had a modest sum coming from the retirement account that Scudder had opened, but it was only a few hundred dollars a month. They had spent most of their money building Corpsewood Manor. Avery Brock and Tony West took as many antiques and other valuables as they could carry and loaded up their own car plus Scudder's car, and they left Corpsewood Manor forever. Miraculously, they dropped the teens back off at Joey Wells' house without harming them, but they left them with a warning that if they told a soul what had happened that night, they would be next. Brock and West were upset that they didn't leave with the big payday that they had expected, and they decided to go on the run to Mexico with the valuables that they did collect. Two days after the murders, while stopped at a rest stop just off the highway, they spotted a man who was traveling alone and had also stopped at the same rest stop. That man's name was Lieutenant Kirby Phelps, and he had been driving cross-country to visit his mother for Christmas. West and Brock saw an opportunity to get some quick cash, and they approached Phelps's car and knocked on the window. Phelps, being a trusting man, opened the door, at which point the men forced their way inside the car. Tony West grabbed Phelps and led him into the dark forest that surrounded the rest stop. Lieutenant Phelps took a swing at Tony West, but Tony West shot him three times in the head. Brock moved everything from their car into Phelps's, and the men continued on. Besides the car, they stole a total of $30 from Phelps's wallet. On December 15th, a friend of Scudder and Odom's went to Corpsewood Manor to visit the men, but instead discovered their bloody bodies. After leaving the house to call the police, remember, there was no electricity in the house, there was no phones in the house, so he had to leave to call the police, but then an investigation began. Frustratingly, investigators started blaming the victims almost immediately. Upon seeing the occult items and the symbolism at the house, they touted that the men were devout devil worshippers and even brought in a handful of priests to walk through the crime scene and bless the house. Now, remember when I mentioned that Scudder enjoyed painting in his free time? Well, investigators found a painting done by Scudder that was especially haunting given what had just happened to the men. The painting was of a man's head, He was gagged and had five bullet holes in his forehead. Scudder had told his friends that 
He had painted it after Odom described a dream to him and had possibly even told people that he believed that that's how he would die. Although he was not shot five times, the similarities to how Scudder was ultimately killed are haunting. Luckily for investigators, the teens that were with West and Brock that night came forward and they told their story, even though they were terrified that Avery Brock and Tony West would then come after them. They pinpointed Avery Brock and Tony West as the murderers and told investigators exactly how everything had gone down. On the run, the stress of everything was getting up to Brock and West, and they ended up splitting up, West continuing on to Mexico while Brock turned himself into authorities in Georgia on December 20th. After a few more days on his own, West ended up not going to Mexico, but headed back to Georgia, where he also turned himself in. Both men confessed to the murders before their trials began, but both had pointed to the other as the trigger man. Avery Brock decided to take a plea deal and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in February 1984. Tony West decided to take his chances at trial and claimed that the wine that Scudder had given the group was laced with LSD. He said he was rendered completely insane by the drug and the thought of being surrounded by devil worshippers, and that's why he committed the murders. But he wouldn't have done it if he hadn't been drugged. So the wine bottles that were found in the pink room that had been drunk by the group that night were sent to the crime lab and they were tested, but no LSD was found in either bottle. The other people that drank the wine, including one of the teens that had first told investigators what had happened, never reported feeling any drugs or feeling weird from the wine. Avery Brock actually even testified at Tony West's trial that he didn't think that there was anything in the wine besides alcohol. It wasn't laced with LSD. Although there were several vials of pure LSD found inside Corpsewood Manor, they were sealed and they hadn't been opened, so they couldn't have been the source. At the end of the trial, the jury deliberated for just under two hours before finding Tony West guilty on two counts of murder and one count of robbery. He was sentenced to die by electrocution. In later appeals, though, his sentence was reduced to life in prison. Not long after the murders, Corpsewood Manor was burnt down by arsonists. There was a debate over who owned the property since Scudder listed only Odom in his will, but Odom predeceased Scudder by about 30 minutes, but ultimately ownership went to Odom's family, including a sister of his. Scudder was cremated, and his remains were sent back to Chicago and interred in a family plot, even though he had wished to remain at Corpsewood and have his ashes scattered there. Odom's remains were spread around the Rose Garden at Corpsewood Manor, where he had spent so many happy days. Today, the remains of Corpsewood Manor have become a destination for morbid tourists. The main house is long gone, but some pieces of the walls with the hand-laid bricks by Scudder and Odom still remain. Thank you for listening to this episode of Morbid Tourism about Corpsewood Manor. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please leave us a rating or review. We'd love to know what you think. New episodes are released weekly. 
Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia and the book Corpsewood, The Eyewitness Account. <laughs>